And now, a Blaze Media podcast. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and Miss Tina, and you stay for the principles. And I hope you've enjoyed the taking a time out over the last couple of weeks where we've taken a break from the daily political grinds, all the bad news, all the anger, and you've enjoyed the messages of hope, of joy. And today we bring you our third gift of four of peace. Spoiler alert, next week we're also having an additional show right in the mouth of Christmas. We're going to talk about the gift of life and you don't want to miss this show. But today I'm going to hand the reins over and Miss Tina is going to take the lead on this one because she has a poem she wants to start. And then we're going to talk about the gift of peace. The night before Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas. He lived all alone in a one-bedroom house made of plaster and stone. I had come down the chimney with presents to give and to see just who in this home did live. I looked all about a strange sight I did see, no tinsels, no presents, not even a tree. No stocking by the mantle, just boots filled with sand. On the wall hung pictures of far distant lands with medals and badges, awards of all kind. A sober thought came through my mind, for this house was different. It was dark and dreary. I found the home of a soldier at once I could see clearly. The soldier lay sleeping, silent, alone, curled up on the floor in this one-bedroom home. Not how I pictured a U.S. soldier. Was this the hero of whom I just read, curled up on a poncho, the floor for a bed. I realized the families that I saw this night owed their lives to these soldiers who were willing to fight. Soon round the world, the children would play and grown-ups would celebrate a bright Christmas day. They all enjoyed freedom each month of the year because of the soldiers like the one lying here. I couldn't help wonder how many lay alone on a cold Christmas Eve in a land far from home. The very thought brought a tear to my eye. I dropped to my knees and started to cry. The soldier awakened and I heard a rough voice, Santa, don't cry. This life is my choice. I fight for freedom. I don't ask for more. My life is my God, my country, my core. The soldier rolled over and drifted to sleep. I couldn't control it. I continued to weep. I kept watch for hours so silent and still. And we both shivered from the cold night's chill. I didn't want to leave on that cold, dark night, this guardian of honor so willing to fight. Then the soldier rolled over with a voice soft and pure, whispered, carry on, Santa. It's Christmas Day. All is secure. One look at my watch, and I knew he was right. Merry Christmas, my friend. 
and to all a good night. And with that, I would like to welcome our guest for today, Jenny Taylor, who will share her story along with our gift, her gift of peace. Jenny, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's great to be with you. And what a great poem. What a way to really set the tone for the season. And I love how it mentions that we get to celebrate and worship and believe and enjoy the holidays because of the men and women in uniform who afford us those freedoms. So that should be a must read for families across America. It's beautiful. It takes that familiar poem where we all know and puts a deeper meaning to it. So thank you for sharing that. And if you want to get the full effect and you will not be able to listen to it without tears, you need to go to YouTube and look up, uh, I think it's called a, a Soldier's Christmas Poem. You will be in tears by the end. It is, it's great. It's set to Silent Night. Yeah, it just brings it to a whole new level. Jenny, will you please share with us about your husband? Because a lot of your story, of course, is centered around your husband about how you started dating and how immediately him joining the military became a huge part of your life. Yeah. You know, it's funny because my husband was a member of the National Guard, which by definition is a part-time soldier, but his military career was anything but part-time for our family. Like you said, from our early dating days, shortly after our blind date, we began talking about his desire to serve in the military. This was shortly after 9-11. He and I both had grown up with just strong feelings of appreciation for this country and not just the kind of appreciation like, hey, thank you for your service, but we both felt compelled to do something about it, do something for our country. And so it, it just led to, he joined the military. I was right by his side the day he enlisted. We got married and four months later, he shipped off to boot camp. He was gone for about a year with all of his initial training as a military intelligence soldier in the guard. And then after that, it was training, deployment, maybe home for a little while, training, deployment, home for a little while. Scattered in there, we have seven children. And miraculously, through all of his combat deployments and training and international assignments, he was home for the birth of every single one of those babies, which I know in the military world is saying a lot. So my heart goes out to those military mamas who've had to give birth with their partner over Zoom or a webcam because, because of deployment. So, you know, he... About halfway through all of that, he decided to run for city council. We live in a small town in northern Utah, about 45 minutes north of Salt Lake City called North Ogden. And he thought that maybe his military and leadership training could help him help our city. And so he had deployed a couple of times. By this point, he had been commissioned as an officer. He ran for city council and won, served four years there. In the middle of that four years, went to Afghanistan came back, ran for the office of mayor, won that, and, and finished four years there. And I'll tell you, Tina, at this point, we're in about 2016, 2017. My husband had joined in 2003. We had these three different deployments, several two-week assignments here and there, because that's what the National Guard is famous for. Lots of time on active duty through the Guard, just by the nature of the global war on terrorism. There were a few years when he lived at home, but was on active duty orders here somewhere in Utah or traveling around the country, but still technically in the Guard. And at that point, 2016, 2017, I'm not going to lie, we're getting older. By then, we've <laughs> 
got these seven kids, you know, we're in our late thirties. He's a major in the national guard. And, and I think it had gotten to the point where the army started to feel more like a part-time thing. Um, prior to 2018, his last appointment was 2011 and 12. So we'd had five or six years, no, no deployments, couple weeks here and there, pretty just loving serving and training, but it was a side thing. His position as mayor had taken over full time. That was really where our public service energy started to be directed. And I'll admit, I considered us a part-time army family. And, um, then, then, of course, that final deployment came and everything changed. But it was a great ride those 15 years. He absolutely loved serving. He loved being deployed, which not everybody gets that. But I know there are others who do. And that doesn't mean he loved leaving me and the kids. That was difficult for him to be away from us. And, of course, difficult for us to have him away. But he loved serving this country. He loved and took great pride in putting on that uniform every day. He has a journal entry, how emotional he felt the first time he put on that camouflage. And it had U.S. Army over one of the, the breast pockets and then his last name, Taylor, over the other. And just what an emotional experience that was for him to envision generations of servicemen and women all the way back to the revolution. And here he was, a young man in the early 2000s, jumping into the fray, proud to serve, proud to unite his energy with that of these great generations before us. And, you know, we've we've been a proud Army family for quite a long time, but technically we were a part-time Army family. What was that patriotism for him? Why did he want to join? Where did that come from? Oh, you know, you can call it patriotism. He would have called it his life mission. He had a strong sense of duty to his God and his country. And, and for us, it really felt like a calling from our maker. And I've talked to other military members who feel that way, where it was more than a job. It was more than a paycheck. It was more than education benefits. All of those things are nice. But I think from a young age, his mother instilled in him a love of country. And his patriotism was never arrogance. In fact, it was great humility. It was an awareness, like I said, that generations of men and women have gone before willing to shed blood to keep us free and safe and, and aware and available to have hope and opportunity. And I think he really felt a need to pitch in. It, it was a desire, but it was more than that. It was a duty that he, I don't think he could have not done it. In fact, one time I remember we were a church service with some older individuals and there was an older gentleman who had served in the Korean War. And he and Brent were talking and kind of exchanging military stories and, and connecting on that level. And I remember Brent saying with real emotion how bad he felt that he hadn't been able to help in the Korean War. That he felt like he, you know, he didn't get a chance to, to serve and do his duty. And I'm thinking, honey, you weren't even alive. <laughs> like you weren't alive for 20 more years. But there was something in him that was older than his earth life, right? Older than the age on his birth certificate. We joke he would have been very happy to live in George Washington's day and serve in that revolutionary army. We always knew he'd be the first to sign up if the need came to sign up. In fact, all four of his deployments were voluntary. Only one of them was even with the Utah National Guard. The three others were some other unit around the country needed backup, and he jumped in. So it was, it was a compulsion for him. He felt compelled to serve, to give back. Um, 
I, I think he wanted to be able to hold his head high with the great ones and the willing ones who had gone for previous generations. If they could go, if they could serve, why in the world should he not join them? So it was, it was deep from a young, young age. You can ask anyone who knew him in childhood. His sweet angel mother taught him all kinds of just patriotic stories, read the stories of American heroes, the well-known ones, the lesser known ones. They would take family vacations and stop at some of those obscure sites across America where you would just tell the story and feel that connection. So I think he really felt a cross-generational duty to be a part of the American story. And as a side note, Jenny, I know that your mother-in-law, how many of her sons served? She's got six soldiers. The woman had seven sons and one daughter, so eight children, which right there should be heralded because that's a lot of kids. Um, she has six boys that all served, signed up shortly after the uh, 9-11 attacks. And then she has one daughter that, that did not serve, but was married to a soldier for a time. And then their youngest son, they actually lost tragically to suicide at the age of 15. So, you know, who's to say it could have been seven sons, but true patriotism. We joke, Tina, I know you and I, somewhere in the past 20 years, we've probably had an Americana room in our home, maybe a bathroom, maybe the living room, you know, some Americana decor. Maybe we pull it out for the 4th of July. This woman's house is Americana. Every room, every season, she makes Christmas in America blend beautifully. And I would attribute so much of my husband's family's feelings of patriotism and respect for this country to that great woman. I mean, you talk of the noble and great ones. Absolutely. Tammy Taylor is at the top. Jonathan, did you have anything you wanted to ask Jenny? Yeah. Um, how much of Jenny's family going back? You know, was there always prior generations? Did they serve or was she the first sort of mom to instill that patriotism and make their kids, you know, not make their kids, but instill a, you know, a sense of service to want to serve this country? Hey, that's a great question. So my husband's grandfather and my grandfather both served in World War II, but that's pretty common for that era. You know, most uh, a lot of men did. I would not consider us a historically military family. Aside from those two, you know, maybe a couple of uncles here and there throughout the generations, but it wasn't something where father to son passes down, which is very common. In fact, today's army is hugely made up of multi-generational families of soldiers. Ours, I would say we're a multi-generational family of patriots, but not necessarily military members. I This was all new to me. In fact, I grew up super patriotic, never once ever once did I consider, hey, I should join the military, like not even on my radar. I, I wanted to serve my country. I loved my country. I felt strong feelings of patriotism from a young age. But, you know, we live out in the West. Tina, you know this. You live here in Utah. I say to a lot of people, Utah loves the military, but we don't always join it. And so we were we were new. This was new to us. Uh, my husband was the second of those six boys to join and then his, you know, several brothers joined over time. It became a family thing. But at first, it kind of felt like we were jumping into something very unknown, but very heart led. And you said your, your husband could visualize sort of fighting for George Washington in the Revolutionary War. Where, was, was he a big George Washington fan or where did that love come from? Oh, just the man loved history. I, I could show you every book he's ever read from George Washington to Hamilton up through McNamara and Vietnam and everything in between. He was a PhD candidate at the time of his death, and he 
loved learning. I really do feel like he felt a connection to these previous generations and wanted to learn from their strengths and their weaknesses. He was, he was very okay with America not being perfect. I know that's kind of a, a buzzword right now in America where everybody's apologetic about the mistakes of our past as a country. And I think he loved the fact that as a country, we've continually gotten better. We've learned, we've improved. Have we made mistakes? Of course. Are there things that we're not super proud of in our past? Wow, man, it's a good thing we've stopped that or learned from that. But he was very forward thinking and um, would look to the historical figures for just their level of dedication. And I think he really honored that and saw how they would study and learn and really put God and country first and everything else would fall into place. I think he maybe lamented that our generation isn't quite as dedicated, isn't quite as civically educated. I mean, let's be honest, our founding fathers were no strangers to politics and government and philosophy. I mean, we act like they were just farmers that showed up and knew how to write a constitution. Yes, they were farmers and lawyers and all kinds of things, but the great men of that day all had great civics education, political uh, philosophy backgrounds. And I think he craved that. But I also joke, he would have been happy to live in olden days. He was an old fashioned kind of guy. Like he would have loved horse and buggy. He would have loved um, quieter times. I think his soul was just older than his mortal body. And so George Washington and some of the original founding fathers really stand out. But but again, he was a studier of history. McNamara, he's studying even the early years of Iraq and Afghanistan as those wars went on for a couple of decades. And maybe what could we do differently? His, his goal was to get that Ph.D. and then at some point maybe work in the Pentagon in terms of policymaking with the DOD and the Department of the Army, knowing that. No soldier on the ground really gets to decide those things. It happens at bigger levels. And I think that's where for him, the worlds of government and military um, came together. He needed the military experience, the boots on the ground, because you can't just legislate from a building in D.C. But he knew that having those boots on the ground experience needed to then go to D.C. and, and make good policy. is away on these deployments were you concerned for his safety was that something that occupied your mind on a daily basis you know tina that's a great question and i'd have to say no and i'd have to say i'm grateful that the answer is no but let me back up a little bit right after that first year where you know we were married then brent was gone nearly a year when we were early married he got back. We ended up, um, we were pregnant with our first baby, getting excited to buy our first home and settled into this family life after that, all of that training. And that's the first time we heard of an upcoming deployment. And it was right away. And it felt right away. Like, oh my goodness, you just got back. You're leaving. And that was in December of 2004, right around the holidays, this time of year. And we had a really long heart to heart because it's almost like it came to, um, put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. Cause we both grew up patriotic. We loved America. We have a duty. We're going to serve. And then here we are brand new pregnant to spend our first year of marriage apart. We're finally back together to settle down. And Oh my goodness, you might go to war soon. And what if you don't come back? And so we had a really long and heartfelt talk about, you know, do we really believe this? Do we believe it enough to be willing to really do that? Of course you hope not to pay that price, but 
by going, you've said you're willing to pay that price. And we had a long, I would say prayerful, tearful, heartfelt discussion. And by the time Dawn came, we were both just convinced, yes, yes, this was the decision we made. We hadn't naively jumped into the army. We hadn't just Pollyanna style said, this will be so great. We really believed it was worth it. And we're willing to take upon us that risk. And that was really the only time in 15 years that we had that depth of what if conversation. Um, when he deployed, it was usually, I couldn't worry about him day in and day out. Cause for one, I just wouldn't have been able to handle that. I would have been an anxious mess. And for two, I'm not going to lie. I had my own battles going on here because I was home with the first time, two babies, a three month old and a 20 month old. That first year-long deployment turned into two back-to-back deployments. So you talk about exhaustion. And then the third deployment, I had four little kids, a seven-year-old down to a nine-month-old baby, two in the middle. And on the fourth deployment, I had a two-month-old, a brand-new nursing baby, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 12-year-old. And our house had just flooded. We had a plumbing problem that made it so the entire house got gutted and we had to go live in a three-bedroom condo for seven months of that deployment. So was I worried about him? Sure, maybe, but guess what? He better be worried about me because I'm losing my mind every day. I mean, really, Tina, sleeplessness. That little two-year-old probably didn't sleep the first two or three months of that deployment because we were in a different surrounding and everything was high stress and he could sense that. I had a new baby that's nursing, my body that's trying to keep up with her demands, plus all the other kids my first almost teenager, my first junior high. It was so much at home that to be honest, I'm not sure I worried about him at all because he go fight your battles. I'm fighting mine. Like I will see you on the flip side and we will, we will swap war stories, you know? And then we got to October of 2018 and there was a lot of turmoil in Afghanistan. If anyone's familiar with the history of that time period or looks it up, it was the first time Afghanistan held parliamentary elections in eight years. And there was great success. The elections were held. It was a huge celebration that that step toward democracy had happened, but it didn't come without turmoil and without a price. And there were, you know, difficulties at some of the ballot lines. There were some casualties. And a young Afghan lieutenant that my husband had been close to was killed in the middle of October. And then there were some other political things that happened. There was a a governor and a sheriff and just different things happening where there was kind of a lot going on on the political scene of Afghanistan surrounding those elections where you knew you were making progress, but progress comes at a price, right? I remember hearing something in the news that I knew my husband was in the, the greater area and there was quite a bit of turmoil. And I remember reaching out and asking him, are you okay? Is, I'm hearing this, of course, the news. Never watch the news if your husband's deployed. Um, but at that moment, I said, hey, I've heard some news. What, what's going on? And he said he was fine. He was OK. But he did know some people who'd recently been killed, including that young Afghan. And, um, you know, he, he acknowledged that things were pretty heated and without going into a lot of detail to worry me. And to be honest, that was it. So d- did I worry about him? Um, I mean, I guess you always worry women worry no matter what, right? Wives worry about all kinds of things, but I am grateful. And I'm pretty sure he feels the same way. Neither one of us spent every day of those deployments thinking, what if, what if, what if, I think that would have hampered both of us in our service to our country. It would have made him a 
a, a timid soldier. I think he would have felt very reserved. Not that he was reckless, but he was confident and he was there and determined to not just sit back and do the bare minimum. I know he wasn't laden with fear every day. And to be honest, neither was I. And I can't imagine if we lived that deployment worrying every day. What if, what if? So I'm, I'm grateful that you speak of peace. I'm grateful for the peace we had that we both agreed he needed to be there. That was something our family needed to do. It was a price worth paying. And good heavens, I'm just going to try to keep myself and the kids alive while you're gone. Were you ever angry with his decision to leave when you were experiencing the flood and you're living in the condo and you're dealing with all these kids on your own? I don't know that I'd say angry because, again, we both had that shared commitment. But there were times when I was like, this is so unfair. And I'll admit, Tina, I'm a scorekeeper. It's a t- don't be a scorekeeper. <laughs> terrible. I'm the kind of woman, Jonathan, you hate women like me, I promise. I'm keeping score whether I'm saying it out loud or not. And I keep score with my kids and I, it's terrible. I have to catch myself. But I'd be thinking, he's missed all the diaper years. He missed so many years of diapers for deployment. So many years. And then he misses so many years of this and so many years of that. And there would be times when not necessarily angry, but I would take all the red hair blood in my body and make sure he knew there is no way you would be able to do any of this without me. Like, are we clear on that? As long as we are clear on that, I am the reason you can do what you do because holy cow, all I'd have to do is put my foot down and say, you're not leaving again. And that would be that. To his credit, I know he never would have gone had I not supported it. And to my credit, I have no regret in the fact that I always supported him. And that was something, to be honest, I almost pride myself in, where I felt the same way he felt that he had this duty to our God and our country. And I was determined to not be the one to get in the way. So did I complain? Sure. Did I crack jokes and get a little bit snarky? You better believe it. (laughs) But I can honestly say I, I was never angry like, oh, you've chosen the army over me. Now, was it difficult? Yes. Were there times when I could say, I know he needs to be there and oh my gosh, I wish he were here. And could someone else please get that throwing up child in the middle of the night because I am so exhausted I can't get out of my own bed? Absolutely. And I think every every military mom has experienced that more than once. But again, you talk of peace. The fact that we both had such a strong conviction in the purpose and the cause behind our family's military service made it so even in the turmoil, there were certain emotions that weren't present and anger just wasn't one of them. What was Brent's assignments there? What was he supposed to be doing? So on the final deployment, he was working as an advisor. He was actually attached to the Army Ranger Battalion um, outside of Georgia, out of Georgia. And their job was to train the Afghan special forces called commandos to be able to take over their own security. I mean, you and I all know what happened in fall of 2021 and the fiasco of leaving Afghanistan. You know, Brent and his his fellow soldiers at that time, we've been at war for 17 years. That's a really long time to fight the same war and go in the same circles. And again, Brent's looking for changes to policy and how we handle our international relations, really looking at the physical and mental capacity of the Afghans to be able to take over their own security. So he would work with a group of other advisors, army rangers, a few army younger infantrymen that were kind of like their bodyguards, and they would do training and drilling with the Afghan special forces. Their job was to say, here's how you do it. 
Here's how you fight the Taliban. Here's how you fight ISIS. We're going to train you to use the equipment. And he loved it. You know, he, he was an amazing soldier. He was also a born teacher. He just had an, an ability to really instill in others the same kind of passion and purpose. And so I think it really was kind of the best of both worlds for him, where he could go do all the amazing soldiery things, but even more so, he was teaching someone else to do that. And he loved it. Can you take us to that horrible day? Yeah. So like I said, October was very tumultuous in Afghanistan that year of 2018. And, you know, there had been kind of some of those anxieties of, are you okay? Is everything okay? And, and I'm trying to be okay with the kids here. We'd settled back into our home after all the flood damage had been repaired. Kids were back in school. And to be honest, the countdown was on. Because if you're a mom with a bunch of kids, the time period between Halloween and Christmas goes really fast. So I'm like, hey, dad left in January. He's supposed to be back in January. We're almost there. So I think I even let my guard down a little bit more. The first you know, nine or 10 months of that deployment were just anxiety over kids and house and plumbing and fighting the insurance. Finally, it felt like, hey, we kind of made it. Rent's okay. We're okay. The house looks great. A newly remodeled house looks way better than an old house. You don't have to fight it and get it, get it done. It was the first weekend of November. My birthday's on Halloween. I had an amazing birthday. My 39th birthday was like the best birthday ever. That weekend, I'd gone with a couple girlfriends from college, and we'd gotten together to just kind of reminisce and catch up. And my mom and mother-in-law had agreed to watch the kids. And so we were about an hour and a half from my home down on the, the campus of Brigham Young University, where my college girls' friends and I had lived and attended school. We were just catching up and having ice cream, and we got a condo, and we stayed the night. Kids are home with grandmas. And I woke up early the next morning and was kind of annoyed, because why do you wake up early when you're not with your kids? Like, please, could I just sleep in? I woke up early and I remember in that moment having a real clarity of mind. I can either roll back over and try to go back to sleep or I could get up and have a few minutes to kind of calm my head. So I got out of bed. I, I got my notebook. I had a journal. I was kind of peripheral and meditating. I had, I had some scripture text with me, so just reflecting. And I probably had about an hour of real mama Zen, which never happens. And looking back now, that was a huge godsend. But so I'd had kind of this grounding morning, very unusual compared to most Saturday mornings as a mom with seven kids. I woke up, I spent some time reflecting. Uh, I was getting ready for the day. My girlfriends were all still asleep except one because it was still pretty early on a Saturday morning away from our kids. And my phone rang. <clears throat> and I look at the caller ID and it's my mom. And I'm like, oh my gosh, which kid burned down the house? Who broke an arm? Because I mean, grandma's home with the kids. My mom knew how badly I needed a break. I know she wasn't just calling to see how we're doing, right? So I'm kind of annoyed thinking, oh, I told you I can't even be gone 12 hours and the world falls apart without me and on and on. That's the narrative in my head. So I answer the phone. I say, hello. You know, kind of irritated, like, oh, what is wrong? And my mom was on the other line and she just said, hey, Jenny, wherever you are, you might want to hit your knees. There's two army officers here and they say they need to talk to you. And I, my stomach hit the floor. My knees hit the floor right after. I, my head began to swirl. I felt hot and cold all at once. And I just began to think like, what? You know, soldiers don't just stop by to say hi, right? What are they doing? And so I get on the phone and they say, is this Mrs. Taylor? And I said, yes, um, who's this? And they told me their names and said that they had a, they had some news they needed to convey to me, but they weren't allowed to do it without uh, being face-to-face. -face. And they said protocol required that. And so 
I, uh, my head is spinning and I just said, well, okay, here's the thing. I'm an hour and a half away from home. I don't even have a car because I took public transportation to get down with my friends. They're up at my house. I said, I don't want to wait an hour and a half to figure out a ride home to have you sit with my kids while I don't know what you're going to tell me. And so I asked them to start driving south and I got my roommate to drive me north. And we met in the middle, very ironically, at the headquarters building for the Utah National Guard which is right where Brent had joined the Army National Guard as a soldier 15 years before with me right by his side. So it kind of all starts and ends there. So we, uh, I went to my roommate. I said, Brent might be dead. I need a ride. And she just looks at me. I mean, no talking, no thinking, no planning. She gets the keys. We get out. We get in the car. We drive north. I still had my notebook that I'd been, remember this calm Zen morning I'd had and every thought rapid fire in my mind. I'm writing things down. What is this? What is this? What is this? I'm thinking, I don't have a passport. What if he's injured? What if he's been medically evacuated to Germany and I can't even go see him? What if, what if he's paralyzed? What if he's completely disabled the rest of his life? How will we pay the bills? What if, you know, you go everywhere, everywhere, everywhere in my head. I went to every what if first before I finally went to what if he's dead? And I had my notebook out and I wrote down, if Brent is dead, I cannot fall apart. The kids will need me too much. And it was, it was kind of like a message to me, like, if this is what it is, we're going to have to do this. I, that you can't choose. The choice is gone. There is no option. And so that was kind of my last, very last thought. Before that thought, I'm trying to go every other place. What if he's injured? What if, what if, what if, what if? And we got to the National Guard building and parked right out in the, the visitor parking. And immediately the state chaplain of the National Guard came to greet me, Mrs. Taylor. And I'm thinking, okay, clearly you knew I was coming. So that, you know, probably not a good sign. We walk in the front door. I swear to you, this National Guard building has a billion doors. And at every door that we walked through, there was a soldier standing at attention, holding the door open for me. And I noticed one significant thing. Not one of them would look at me. They all stood stiff as a board at attention, holding the door very respectfully. Not one of them said, good morning. Hi, ma'am. How are you? Not one of them would even look at me. And so as I took steps down that hall and through those various doors, the what ifs just began to reduce in number down to one, one big what if. And I was seated in a conference room. The officers who had been at my home in North Ogden came into that room and almost out of a movie, they sat next to me. I sat at the table and they began to read, you know, there's a script. There's a, a very scripted script of what they say. And I don't remember all of the words, but it starts with, you know, Mrs. Taylor on behalf of the Department of the Army, or maybe it's the President of the United States. I don't know who it's on behalf of, but the words I remember very clearly are, we regret to inform you that your husband, Major Brent Taylor, was killed this morning on a ruck march in Afghanistan. And I looked at them and again, just sheer shock. Like there's no, there's no weeping and wailing. There's no sobbing and crying. I was in physical and emotional shock. And the first words out of my mouth were, they killed him on a hike. A ruck march is a hike. He took a hike every Saturday morning with the Afghans to do team building and physical fitness exercises. And they killed him on a hike. The man who had faced the Taliban and ISIS and Iraq two times and Afghanistan two times and all those months and years of military service. 
and an Afghan killed him on a hike. And then the rest of the day just began to unfold. I immediately thought of my mother-in-law who had already buried one son, her, her youngest son that they had lost to suicide in 2011. Here it was 2018 and now one of her older sons has been killed. And I, I just remember thinking this will kill her. She'll, she'll never be able to survive burying two sons. There's no way any woman could survive burying two sons. And then I'm thinking of my children and, you know, my father had died when I was 10. And the last thing I want to do is tell my kids they're going to grow up without their dad. And then I started to think of Brent's brothers and sister and my brothers and sister. And then the entire city of North Ogden. This man's the mayor of a city of 20,000 people who are all waiting for him to come home. And I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders as we began to notify people. We had to let my husband's parents know next. They had their own casualty officers that were actually on standby next to their home waiting to notify them, but not until I had been notified. There's quite a bit of protocol for these kinds of things. So no one could know anything until I knew face-to-face. My in-laws were to be the second to know, also face-to-face. And from there, we just began making horrible phone calls. And my mom and sister had known something was happening. My mom called my sister and and they left the children immediately with my brother-in-law and grandpa and they started driving. So shortly after I got the actual news, my mom and sister showed up and I remember my sister walking into the room and we're in, we're in chaos. We're in business mode. We're notifying. I was pacing the room again in total shock. I began to tell my sister what we needed to do. We need to go get the kids. We need to call this person. We need to do this. We need to do this. And she just stopped me And almost like grabbed my shoulders and looked at me face to face. And she said, say it. So she said, wait, so Brent's dead. Like I need someone to actually say it because it was very implied in the room, but it's like, we had to hear it because otherwise you're just trying to deny it. I just looked at her. I said, Brent's dead. Like we have to go. And, and that entire day was just autopilot of, I have to keep my head up. I've got a mom and a mother-in-law and all these siblings and seven kids and 20,000 residents and an entire nation that's going to be heartbroken over this. And I knew that because I'm heartbroken every time a service member dies, even when I've never met him or her and I know nothing about their personally, it hurts because those men and women belong to us as a country and they die for us as a country. And I just knew this was going to be not my own. So we, we drove home. We told my kids uh, before I knew it, I felt like half the city in North Ogden was in my living room or my front yard. Social media, of course, explodes. Army protocol. I told you there's a lot of protocol. Army protocol is supposed to give us as a family 24 hours between when they tell us and when they announce it to the media, which technically they did. But by the time they had technically announced it to the media on Sunday, Everybody already knew that press conference was Sunday at noon. I got my first phone call from the national media Sunday morning at 8.30. So three and a half hours before the technical announcement, it was somebody from CBS calling to see if I'd do an interview. And I answered my phone. I look back now, I cannot believe I answered my phone.
So listening to your story, one of the things that frustrates me about this nation is the lack of respect towards your military. Um, there's this disconnect between the average person, and I hate using that term, but you know, the average American who loves their country but you know doesn't ever serve or doesn't ever get involved or isn't blessed enough to know military who did or to who families who paid the the price um how do we tell people that story but also how do we highlight the story which you've been talking about because i always say it's it's great to salute the military but you got to salute the real heroes as well as the people left at home um like you know as you've spoken about the you know, the mom who has, set, in your case, seven kids um, or, you know, the, your mother or your mother-in-law, you know, the, there's a lot of it uh, goes on behind the scenes. And those stories never seem to get told because, you know, you can only serve overseas if you know everything at home is looked after. So right. how do we tell that story and or how do we warm up um, the people to realize it? Because there's this sentiment and I've noticed this about the military and, and about America, that America sucks, America's evil, America's vile, America's racist. And you fill in all the blanks. And as someone who wasn't born here, but who calls this now is my home, you know, I'm forever thankful for the military because without the US military, it's factually, I'd speak German and I wouldn't know what I know now because it would have banned all the books. Um, ironically, that's what we're doing in society now anyway. But how do we get to that point where we tell the story? Well, I think we just need to start telling them. I mean, podcasts and platforms like this, the work that you guys are doing is huge. These stories have to be told. And and I can sit here and tell this story and feel like I'm describing a Hallmark movie, right? This is a made-for-TV special where father goes away to war and doesn't make it back alive, and it can be tragic and heartbreaking. And then I remember, oh, yeah, this is my story, this is my reality. And it would be easier for me to just be quiet about it and go home and cry in my bed and keep it to myself. But the truth of the matter is it's not just my story. It's part of the American story. And we've got to give more families the opportunity to tell the story, which unfortunately is a difficult thing to ask because it's not always easy to tell these kinds of stories. You know, you, you and I both know all of our grandfathers that served in World War II and never talked about the war while there's a certain nobility and humility behind their reason for staying quiet and keeping those difficulties to themselves, I am really begging today's military and veteran community to please talk. Please tell your story. If you don't tell my kids what it's like to go to boot camp or war, how will they ever know? And if you don't let us know the difficulties, the highs and the lows, the good and the bad, there's great things in the military too. It's not all PTSD. There's great leadership and service and humanitarian. Tell both sides of the story. Give me both sides of the coin. Because if you don't, statistically speaking, I will never know. Less than 1% of Americans alive today are currently in the military. It's around 8% that have ever served that are alive. That's counting every veteran from every conflict that's still on this planet, you know, up to 100 years old. 8%, 1%, those are statistically very small numbers. We cannot have only 1% of our country familiar with the price of freedom. It'll never work. You can never have that kind of statistical imbalance. So either more of us need to join, which the army is recruiting every day, come sign up. But even if you don't join, you still have a duty as a citizen of this country. 
You still have a part to play. You still have to be aware. And Jonathan, you're right. You'll bring it up. America's fill in the blanks. It's our own countrymen saying it for the most part. And I want to say, go live somewhere else. Go step back in time somewhere else. Go appreciate this country by maybe leaving it for a minute. Because that's what our military is better able to do. They've been around the world. They've seen systems that don't work as well as the system we've had. Brent, my husband would say all the time, democracy is messy. But it's the best system we have on this planet. It's not a perfect system. We've never claimed to be a perfect union. In fact, our founding fathers nailed it in the preamble to the Constitution when they used the phrase, a more perfect union. Their goal was to be better today than yesterday. I believe their goal for us was to be better today than we had been. So do we have racist problems in the history of this country? Yes. Slavery, bigotry, all kinds of things, even outside of race. Have we made mistakes as a nation? Yes. Are we flawless as a people? No. Are we working on getting better every generation? Absolutely. And that's where we should hold our heads high. And I believe that's why men like my husband die and give up every one of their dreams so that you and I can live our own version of the American dream. And we offer it even to you, Jonathan. You don't have to be born here. We want you to have it too. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness do not belong to America. We didn't invent those qualities and those trades. We're just really adamant at making sure people get a chance. My husband didn't die just protecting me. He died trying to give the Afghan people a better way of life. His love for the American values was so strong, it knew no political boundary. And so I need the men and women in today's uniforms to tell us that. I need our Vietnam and Korean veterans to open their mouths and share their stories. I need those from the Cold War and Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield to let us know what it was like. Now, might those stories be hard to tell? Yes. Might they be hard to hear? Yes. Might it make it all a little bit uncomfortable? I hope so. Because for me, you mentioned disrespect being what drives you crazy. What drives me the most crazy is the apathy. Because I believe with true understanding, that respect will come. With true awareness, that respect will come. But when we are so apathetic because life's so good, it doesn't really matter to me. And I'm not touched by the price of freedom. I mean, you look at basic economics 101, right? You give away a whole bunch of free money, people don't value that money. Well, you give away a whole bunch of freedom for free, and a lot of people don't value that freedom. So we as a nation have got to figure out how to better pay the price together. Now, should 100% of Americans join the military? I don't know. That might be a conversation for another day. We haven't had a draft for a generation or two. We don't really have a conscripted service where every young person has to serve an obligatory year and a half or two. And I'm not saying that we need to have that. But I am saying we all need to pay the price of freedom. And I believe that as a patriot, that's my duty. As a citizen, that's my job. I never went to boot camp and I never put on the uniform of this country, but I'm pitching in to pay my share of the price and not just the day my husband died, but every day before and after. And I hope as my children grow, they will realize their father died because he knew the price was willing and worth being paid. 
Is the price of freedom high? Immeasurably so. Is it worth it? Every penny. But we cannot expect 1% of America to pay the full price for the other 99% of us to just sit back and watch. We've got to get in this together. In or out of uniform, we have to recognize patriotism is not arrogance. It's not conceit. It needs to be the kind of humility that compels all of us to action in our own sphere. Imagine if each of us did what each of us has the capacity to do. And that's all I'm asking. Do what you have the capacity to do. In my husband's case, he had the capacity to put on a uniform, train Afghans, and die in a foreign country. That's not the common story for most average Americans. What do you have the capacity to do? And what are you doing with it? I mean, you guys are doing a great job, Tina and Jonathan. You're hosting this podcast. You're having these conversations. You're enlightening people. You're kind of kicking that fire underneath them to get them going. I would just ask everyone within the sound of my voice to please do what you have the capacity to do. And whatever that is, if we would all do it, it would be enough. I agree. And the reason I get I the frustration annoys me more than the apathy is just purely because of who I am. Because I'm an Irish guy who lives in America and I go around public speaking telling about why America changed the world. And I get people who generally are not apathetic. If you're coming listening to me or you're listening to the show, you're not apathetic. You have an opinion one way or the other. And it always troubles me. And I, I kind of laugh in a sick, twisted kind of way of, so the Irish guy is defending America to the American while the American is telling the Irish guy that America really sucks. Should be the other way around. You yeah. know, of how, how you're so stupid or how you you're, you think you're better than you are. And, but I go around to these places and what really troubles me is, because I'm a storyteller and is the, the the people who kind of go, you know, it's we don't hear that very much anymore. And I'm like, this is a problem. So yeah. we need people to tell the story of it. And we need to really reconnect with the military. Is the military perfect? No. I, you know, I've been very critical of some of the, the high-up generals, um, you know, and certain things that they do. But the, the average, you know, person who serves on the ground and who's over people, they're usually really good people. I've met a lot of military. There are very few people who are not like three, four, five-star generals who are, you know, bad people. They they love this nation. They die for this nation. They give everything for this nation. They go overseas to make a difference. They're not going like one of the things that annoys me about the military is is uh, or not about the military, but people who describe the military is well, only people who join the military is who wants to go and kill people. You're so off. What would you say to people to to? to sort of share the message like what's the inspiration like because from your husband's point of view and all that family background how did you know what can we learn from him on the the love of washington or whether it's lincoln or someone else well i think for one thing like you said it's all storytelling right go pick up a book go read a book about a previous war read a book about a soldier whether past or present read a book about a conflict a battle a, a force something that happened and then go talk to people you know, we see, let's say you see a soldier at the airport, he's in uniform. Most Americans will say, oh, thank you for your service. That's great. Good start. Thank you for your service. Hey, where have you served? Thank you for your service. Hey, why did you ever join in the first place? Ask those questions. Have those conversations. We've got to, I love that you said we've got to connect with our military. We've got to rec recognize that America, America's military are Americans' sons and daughters, right? So go tell their stories. Ask the stories. If you know someone who has buried a service member, ask them to tell you their story. 
I know, I know some people are always nervous about that. They don't want to bring up the deceased because it might be uncomfortable or it might make me cry if you ask me about my husband. But let me just tell you something, Jonathan. If you bring up my dead husband, you did not suddenly remind me that he's dead. I'm well aware of that every second of every day. So you bringing him up helps me know that you remember and care. Because I already remember and care all day. So you bringing him up, find the families of the fallen, find families of service members, ask them, check in on them, help them. When there's a deployment, go take out the family's trash can to the street for garbage day once a week. Find some way to serve because again, most of us won't serve in the uniform. Statistically speaking, we just won't, but we can serve those who serve us. And one of the best ways to serve them is to let them be real people. Look beyond the camouflage, ask the questions, learn the story, connect with the family. But like I said, that's for sure a two-way street. And we've got to help today's military to understand the unique perspective they have that they've got to be willing, at least to a degree, to share with us so that we can, to a degree, see what they've seen and experience what they've experienced. And that will help us understand. It breaks my heart that you're saying you're the, you're the Irish guy defending my country to my countrymen. Like good heavens. What's, when did it become wrong to be proud of our country, to be proud, to be an American, to stand for that flag, to love everything this country has to offer. Even though those of us in this country are imperfect. Again, the values of this country, that's what we're shooting for. Are we perfect at it? No way. Do we keep trying? Absolutely. But we're never going to get there if we're the ones apologizing for our nation's history and, and flaws. Let's own them. Let's own the flaws. Let's own our own weaknesses. Let's own the fact that every one of us makes mistakes every day. And then let's work on it. Let's get better. Let's do better. And let's be better. Like I said, to me, patriotism is not arrogance. But you better believe I'm proud of my country. Uh, that, that doesn't, I, it's not a conceit. It's a huge humility. And I think maybe that's what most of us need to realize. Being proud to be an American comes with great humility. And we tend to look at humility and pride as opposites. Whereas I say they go hand in hand. We should be so proud of this country and it should be such a humbling honor to try to make this country even better. And it's just, it's just a new way of thinking, right? Instead of, or we have to think and, I can be proud and humble. Isn't that interesting? As an American, I can be proud and deeply humble by the fact that I get to live and breathe and dream in this country. That doesn't make me supremacist. It doesn't make me arrogant or conceited. But you better believe I'm aware of just how good we've got it here. So your story, as powerful as it is up until the point of your husband's passing, isn't the end of your story. So how easy would it be before we get into everything that you do now and you've been doing over the last few years? Talk me through the process of going through that press conference, you know, doing the media to getting to where you are now. There, there had to be part of you, sure, that would kind of went, you know, my husband paid the price, you know, for both me and my kids. I'm done. See you later. Thanks for playing. Love you, America. But, you know, my tab is paid. My tab's Time paid. I was going to say those exact words. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's very interesting because, like I said, I got that first phone call from the national media less than 24 hours after I found out my husband. In fact, well less than 24 hours. 
after I found out he was dead and I answered the phone and I agreed to meet and I agreed to answer questions. Part of it was because of this huge awareness that this was not just my story. But part of it was also my husband as a political leader and military figure before he had never shied away from the from the media. He felt like um, too many politicians were skittish about talking to the media because let's be honest, the media doesn't always get it right. Even the small town paper might have some errors or what, but he felt like open communication and transparency were huge. And I know that if the media had called him the next day, he would have answered the phone. So part of me was inspired by that. But also it's become this beautiful opportunity for our family to continue serving. Like you said, our story doesn't end the day we buried him. In fact, I, I feel like the story's just catapulted exponentially since then, both his legacy and the rest of our family's opportunity to serve. Um, I, I met with the media that very, very early in the morning before sunrise, even on election day of 2018. And just shared my thoughts of having watched his body being transferred and standing there with my two young sons and my in-laws. And, and I said those very words that the price of freedom is immeasurably high. But what if that price were not to be paid? And from there, it, it just led from one media opportunity to another. I remember two or three months into after his passing, just being exhausted, you know, beyond words. And I feel as if God spoke to my soul. And told me that this first year didn't belong to me. This first year was my communities and my countries. That this grief wasn't yet mine own. But that there was, a, you know, I, I think of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and how she had to bear losing JFK and some of these other public figures that were far more public than my small town mayor husband. But I knew that from the beginning that that, um, that first year wasn't going to be mine. And I remember getting to the end of that first year and taking a deep breath, like, I'm going home. I'm going home now. I've, I've spoken everywhere. I've traveled everywhere. I've been everywhere. I've interviewed with everyone. I'm going home. The interesting thing was I, I did go home. I kind of caught my breath and, and things did start to feel a little more personal. And then opportunities just continued to come. And I continued to feel like this is our, this is our family's service. And it wasn't long. It was in that same time period that I was actually asked to serve as a civilian aide to the secretary of the army for the state of Utah. And um, it's a volunteer position, but it's, it's, you know, pretty half-time full-time job where I'm representing army matters to the Pentagon and Pentagon issues back to Utah for particularly army. I've, I've been able to speak in a lot of different places. Our families had an opportunity to start a foundation here in Utah. We call it the Major Brent Taylor Foundation. We host a massive 9-11 event each year that's community-based with firefighters and military and police officers and medical workers to celebrate those professions. We've, um, we, we've been involved in scholarships, military um, monuments, both to the Gold Star families left behind and also to the to the service members still living, you know, whether it's a veterans memorial or a Gold Star family memorial. We just had incredible opportunities that to me are just living proof that the cause of this country is greater than any one of us. I would say it's greater than all of us combined. But, you know, the, the man who shot my husband, he'd been indoctrinated by terrorism. He actually made a cell phone video declaring his intent to kill Major Brent Taylor and why. And in this video, he stated that he believed that by killing Brent Taylor, it would put a stop to the American army in Afghanistan, which you and I both know is comical. Like there's no major in America's army that's going to be in charge of everything and stop it all. 
But to me, it was just evidence that Brent was doing his job well enough that he personally was seen as a threat to the enemy. But what makes my heart sore is knowing that the day Brent died, the American cause lived on. Men and women continue to serve. They continue to fight. The cause continues to outlive any of us. And so that's where I find my drive in knowing, though I'm obviously devastated that he's not here, I can recognize this is so much bigger than even our entire family. And so the opportunities I feel God has put in our path to speak to freedom, sounds like you do the same thing as the Irishman, I do it as the widow. Because guess what? I've got a perspective most of you don't have. I've been at Dover Air Base in the middle of the night. I've watched a casket draped with a flag cross a tarmac with my dead husband inside. I've raised seven kids who my, my little guy the other day, he's almost seven. We just passed the anniversary of my husband's passing. So we're four years out. This little kid is six, almost seven. He said, I don't remember much. And I kind of looked at him. I said, well, what do you mean? He said about dad. Like, I don't remember much. I, I don't remember what he used to do with us. I don't remember the sound of his voice. And then he just kind of trailed off. Very matter of fact, he wasn't sad. He wasn't angry. It was just very matter of fact. This little boy doesn't remember much because he was robbed of decades of memories. And if I can tell you that story and still hold my head high and say, I'm proud to be an American, I'm determined to fight for the very cause that killed my husband. I will honor and respect that flag and everything it embodies till the day I also die. Then you find me the average American that can't find something to be proud of in this country. And I think that's where voices like yours and mine are so important. You have a unique perspective as someone new to this country. I have a unique perspective as someone who's paid a very heavy price for this country. And both of us will say, it's worth it. It's beautiful. And we each need to pitch in. So that's our, our family's legacy. I feel like it's just being written. But I'll also say I know our legacy didn't start with Brent. He wasn't the first one to love America. He wasn't the best soldier that ever lived. He stood on the shoulders of giants before him. And now I look forward to the day when other giants will stand on his shoulders. And he will be part of that continuing legacy of America, literally for hundreds of years to come. Tell us about the, the foundation. What led to it? What's its main aim? Um, what, what's your hopes for the future that you, you can share for it? And you know what difference it's going to make? Well, it started with a scholarship drive because that's um, pretty common after somebody passes away. Uh, he was actually a PhD student at the time. Some of his colleagues and professors started a small scholarship drive. And I went to meet with the university. And before I left the university, I committed to give him 100 grand. And I drove away from the university and went, oh, my gosh, what have I done? Like, I don't have a hundred grand. I'm a widow with seven kids and and my head spinning. And well, that was where he got his master's and where he was working on a Ph.D. It's the University of Utah. But both of us had done our undergraduate work at Brigham Young University. And there's a good school rivalry there in the state of Utah between BYU and the University of Utah. Well, I couldn't have a scholarship at one school in his name and not at the other. So pretty soon I've committed another 60 grand to BYU. And now I'm really thinking, what have I done? And um, so it was about nine months after Brent died the following summer. It was his 40th birthday. And we held a birthday party that was a fundraiser. And we tried to raise 40 grand for his 40th birthday. And it just all started from there. 
as we were having a picnic at the park and raising some money there, a friend mentioned to me that people might be more apt to donate if I had nonprofit status with the IRS. So we filed papers of incorporation and got 501c3 status and it just grew from there. So we have an endowed scholarship fund at both of those universities. We have another endowed scholarship fund at Weber State University, which is here in the Ogden area where Brent um, served as mayor. We have scholarships at his high school and my high school. And then we've gone on to do, you know, like I said, the, the 9-11 event and patriotic events. We take flags to military and veterans funerals. We'll hold them. There's a deployment or a homecoming. We have a giant flag that measures 78 by 150 feet that we fly in a canyon every Veterans Day as we hold a Veterans Day devotional. And so we just like it's America. It's here. In fact, people joke we don't celebrate Veterans Day in North Ogden. We celebrate Veterans Week. And it actually spans two weeks. So we go from the very end of Halloween through Veterans Day. Halloween's become a very sentimental holiday for me because it's actually it's my birthday. And it's the kickoff to remembering our servicemen. In the middle of Halloween and Veterans Day falls the anniversary of my husband's death and Election Day. And he was the first sitting politician since the Civil War to be killed in action. And so those dates are all really significant to our family. But our, our foundation, you know, you asked me, what are my goals? I don't know, other than to be awesome and do awesome things. We never made a business plan. We didn't sit down for years and strategize and form a board and take classes. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a mom and a PTA president with an education degree, but I love this country. And I feel like where there is a will to serve and make this country better, God will open the doors and we walk right through them every time. So we continue to give away scholarships. We just had our annual fundraiser this year and made over $180,000 thanks to great companies and people around us. We can expand our scholarships. We are working on a project that I am so proud of right now, Jonathan, and you should come with us. Next September, we're taking a whole bunch of Utah Gold Star families. That means they've lost someone in service to this country. We're taking them to Fort Benning in Georgia. There is a global war on terrorism memorial there. It has over 7,000 names etched in stone, those who've been killed in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, killed in combat. And we are going to take their surviving family members to see that memorial, almost like an honor flight where we take our nation's older veterans to Washington, D.C. to see that. But we want to take these family members now. We don't want to wait till they're in a wheelchair and need oxygen. We want to take them to see their son or their daughter, their sister, their brother, their husband's name on the wall. So we've raised money for all of these things. And, and I feel like I wake up one day with an idea. I'm surrounded by amazing people. It's an all-volunteer force of people who just love and want to give back. We have some military. We have civilian. We have firefighters. We have police. And we just get to work. And, and our goal is to be awesome and have an impact. And I feel like that will morph as time goes by. And mostly just hold on tight. Because like I said, I believe, I believe when we as Americans are determined to make America better, God will provide a way because God is at the base of this country. And he wants us to live up to what he's given us the opportunity to do and become. So we're excited. Nothing but big things ahead. But our big project right now is getting several of those family members to Georgia next September when they will do another dedication service for that wall. And are you raising money for that? We're raising money for that. How would people donate? All right. So they can go to majorbrenttaylor.com. And that's all just one word, 
majorbrenttaylor.com and there's a donate now button and it will take you to a secure platform that where you can you can donate 50 bucks, 5000, 50000 whatever you want to give us. We promise to put it all to work. We have no paid staff or you know we were all volunteer based but our goal we raised we like i said we brought in about $180,000 from our dinner. We're trying to raise about another 75,000 between now and spring so that we can take more family members on this trip. So if you want to help me get the word out about that, we'd love to get some big donor partners on board. We'd love to have a few escorts come with us. It really is going to be like an honor flight, but it's for the family members left behind so that they can go honor their loved one. Particularly here in Utah, most Utahns don't make it to Fort Benning. They might not even know where it is. It's south of Atlanta, outside of Columbus, Georgia. Most of the families of the fallen global war on terrorism, military members here in my home state, probably don't even know that wall exists. And yet their son or their husband or their brother or sister or mom has a name on that wall. We want to get them there to see it, to touch it, to feel it, to bond with other families. Danny, as we get ready to end this episode, I recently saw a video that was put out by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that you did. And as we talked at the beginning of this episode, the gift that we wanted you to focus on is the gift of peace. And in that video, as I watched it, it was easy to see the torment that you were experiencing after the death of your husband and how you were going to do this, how you were going to raise these seven kids on your own. And then it got to the point where you were almost ashamed to admit the blessings that had come through your husband's death. How have you experienced peace since the untimely death of your husband? Oh, Tina, I could write a book about it. Um, I think the greatest peace comes in knowing that Brent and I were united in our conviction to serve this country and that I can honestly say I do believe some things are worth dying for, even if it's my family member that had to die for it. The greatest peace that has come to me has come just peace from God, peace in knowing that I can have hope and healing, peace in knowing that I'm not alone. But I will tell you, it's a hard sentence for me to say out loud. My life has been very blessed by my husband's death. I think maybe my community has been very blessed by my husband's death. And that's hard to say, but I can't deny it. I, I can't deny the growth. I can't deny the feelings of patriotism in my neighbors and friends and our community. I can't deny the good that continues to come out of that tragedy. And so for me, the peace that comes, the peace comes in knowing I'm part of something so much bigger than myself. Peace that comes in, I can find purpose in my pain. And I know everyone wants to say all things happen for a reason. And I think that's hogwash. I think God helps us find reason in all things that happen. I don't spend a lot of time wondering why my husband had to die. I spend a lot of time wondering how, how will we keep going? And it's the peace that comes from, from good friends and neighbors, inner peace from God, peace from my husband. I, I feel him still near and a part of us, a part of our family. Peace in knowing that he thought this country was worth it. In fact, he knew this country was worth it. And the greatest peace we have as a family comes in knowing again that we're, we're part of something so much greater than ourselves. 
I really believe things will work out. I believe God makes beauty out of ashes, just like the Old Testament teaches so many Jewish and Christian people. I believe there is purpose and that we can even create purpose out of the pain we face in life. And I believe that through service and purpose, you invite peace. It'd be really easy to just pick on myself and poor me and why. And I could get angry and I could get upset. And that's not to say I don't have my moments of of just real difficulty. But when I try to think of the bigger picture, when I remember the motive behind everything my husband ever did, I'm given a great measure of peace. And for me, as we as we're talking this holiday season, you know, Christmas is a very Christian holiday. I believe Christ to be a real man who lived and died for me and my life. I believe an American soldier is the closest thing to a Christ in our lives. These men and women that go to war to live and die so that we can live our lives. So even though Christmas is by nature a religious and cultural holiday, I hope that for Americans, Christmas is also a very military holiday. And that as those of us who believe in Jesus Christ celebrate him for laying down his life, that we can live. I hope we celebrate the American soldier for doing the same. And not just those who do die, but all those who join because they're willing to die. And every man and woman in uniform to me is exactly what Christmas is all about. It's hope. It's peace, it's opportunity, it's freedom, it's love, it's joy, it's everything wonderful that we take for granted every day. And as we celebrate Christmas and Christianity, even those who aren't Christian can have a respect for what that is. And looking at the American soldier as offering us the exact same gift. And I think I find peace in knowing that if my husband was willing to die for me, I guess I can get out of bed in the morning and do the best I can with the life that he's offered me. Tina, so Tina, who have you got on your show this week? So my guest on this week's episode of We the People, Our American Story is former Miss America, Charlene Wells. I am real excited to have her on, and she's a very patriotic soul. I'm looking forward to all of you hearing her story. You can catch it at www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, we salute our U.S. military, firefighters, police officers, and emergency personnel. And I salute you, the great American people. Never forget the sentiments of Tocqueville. America is great because Americans are good. Or, as I heard on this show, a great saying, which I think we need to incorporate, be awesome and do awesome things. Same thing. Um it's an amazing sentiment. America is great because Americans are good. You're not great because of Biden or Trump or DeSantis or Republicans or Democrats. You're great because of your people. I hope you've enjoyed this message of peace and tune in next week for a powerful message of life right on the eve of Christmas. Until Saturday, next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week, America. and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.